This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Because everyone deserves a great night's sleep, especially you. Get $50 off any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash fool and enter the promo code fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. He's also the advisor on The Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, bro. Hello, Allison. Gone are the days of getting a gold watch and a stable pension when you turn 62. Your retirement is going to look way different from your parents. In some ways, that's good. Some ways, not mm. so much. So today we're going to talk about the new normal for retirement and how you can prepare. We're also going to tackle your question about weighted index funds and see how animals fare at picking stocks. Monkeys! <laughs> we finally get to work monkeys into the show. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So today's question comes from Chris from northern Minnesota, who at this exact moment is milking a cow. Do we know that for we sure? We do know that because Chris is a dairy farmer and he listens to Motley oh, Fool podcasts right. hi, while tending to his cows. Say hi to Bessie for us. All right, Chris writes I buy individual stocks but have been diversifying with buying a Vanguard S&P 500 ETF and was just wondering if it would make sense to diversify that market cap weighted index with a fundamentally weighted index. Bro, define some terms for me here. Well, first of all, I'd like to say that, Chris, I think you're doing a very smart thing and that you're buying individual stocks, but also diversifying into a index ETF. You're sort of hedging your advisor risk, which is the risk that your retirement would be riding on the investment skills of one person, in this case, you. So, I think that's smart. The S&P 500 is a market-weighted index. What that means is bigger companies have a bigger weighting. So, for example, if you were to put $1,000 into an S&P 500 index fund today, about $32 of that would be invested in Apple, the biggest company in the index. Oh, okay. The smallest company, Diamond Drilling, Diamond Offshore Drilling, you'd have a grand total of about a dime. In other words, you'd own 331 times more Apple than Diamond Offshore Drilling. So this has led to some criticisms about market-weighted indexes. First of all, the performance is really driven by the biggest 50 to 100 stocks. So it's not really as diversified as some people will say about it. So, and the the performance of the small companies really have no effect. Your diamond offshore drilling could double in price and your 10 cent holding is now 20 cents. It's essentially meaningless. Uh, but also, as a company's share price goes up, it has a bigger influence on the performance. And it's sort of like buying a stock after it has already gone up. And a big concern about that is some stocks go up way too much. And that exposes more people to these stocks when it might be time for a bubble. So, for example, if you look back at 1999 at the top holdings of the S&P 500, so right before the tech bubble crash, among the top, the top 10 stocks were Microsoft, Cisco, Lucent, Intel, and America Online, and IBM. So, of those top 10 stocks, only one, IBM, is worth more today than it was way back in 1999. And it's the same right before the Great Recession. In 2006, S&P 500 among the top 10 holdings, um, Bank of America, Citigroup, and AIG, which then went on to lose 99% of its value. So, several folks have said, we should change this 
and weight things differently. One easy way to do that would just be to take the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 and just put an equal amount in each of them. Um, and you can do that with a Guggenheim ETF, which is called this S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF. Oh, as advertised. As advertised. Um, but then there are other methods where people say, let's weight the index according to a company's fundamentals, like its sales, its profits. It's dividend, and these have become known as fundamental indexes. Oh, okay. So instead of saying like I'm going to own, I'm going to build an index based on the market cap of a company, I'm going to build it based on sales, so that the company with the most sales is the one that has the biggest holding or the biggest dividend yield or something like that. Um, and one of the first ones to come out was the Power Shares FTSE Rafi US 1000. <laughs> that sounds exciting. It's exciting. It's been around for about a decade. So, when you look at the performance of these, because it is relatively new to do these sort of alternate ways to weight indexes, they actually do outperform the S&P 500. Why is that? Because what you're generally doing relative to the S&P 500 is you're taking some of the money away from big companies and investing in small companies. You're also putting less money in more growthier types of companies and more Growthier? Is Growthier, that the technical term? That is the technical term. Okay. And putting more money into companies that are cheaper by some metric, like price to earnings ratio. And over the long term, we know small caps generally beat bigger companies. Value oriented stocks as a group tend to beat expensive companies. So I'm all for the theory of fundamental indexes. I think it's a smart idea to diversify your individual stocks into something like this. Um, but you can accomplish something very similar by just buying a small cap index fund or a value-oriented index fund. I wouldn't abandon the S&P 500 totally, because despite its flaws, history has shown the vast majority of mutual fund managers and the vast majority of individual investors just can't beat it. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the costs of dealing with showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. We're talking $950 for their award-winning king-sized mattress. That's pretty that's a pretty good price. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period. Yes, 100 days. You can try it out. If the price and convenience wasn't enough, you also don't have to lie down in a showroom because lying down in front of strangers is always weird. <laughs> you can save an additional $50 toward the purchase of a new mattress by going to casper.com fool and entering the promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. Chances are one of your goals is to retire someday. And Bro is here to deliver some bummer news. Is it some? It's some good news. It's mostly bummer news, but there is some good news, and we hope to go out on a positive note about this. Perfect. So, some bummer news, but some good news about the new realities of retirement. We've got five things that are going to aspects of retirement that are different from what maybe you or your parents or your grandparents experienced. Right. So, cool. all right. Let's do the first one, shall we? Well, yeah. So for a while now, we've had a certain model of retirement. You enter the workforce at 22, retire at 62, die at 82. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, life expectancy is important. But <laughs> that was very blunt. That was a short bio of Robert Brokamp. <laughs> there you go. 
CFP. <laughs> I think my description of you is longer than the bio you just did, but okay. Well, as we'll discuss later, life expectancy is important because that's essentially the end of your retirement, and you have to sort of make an estimate of how long your retirement is going to last. Anyways, but there are five ways why the future of retirement will look different than the golden years of yore, and one of them is investment returns will likely be lower. Oh, that's bummer news. That is a bummer news, and that's why you know, we're all investing for our retirement, and of course, while we're in retirement, you still will be investing. If they're going to be lower returns, that obviously is something that's important to factor into things. Uh, why the lower returns? Well, we talked before about how the best, though not perfect, indicator of future returns for the stock market is valuations. Right now, the stock market is at least fairly valued, if not overvalued. As for bonds, best indication of future returns is current interest rates. So you look at the long-term history of things. You always hear about how the stock market has returned 10% a year since 1926. Part of that is a 4% dividend yield. Right now, we're only at 2%, so that knocks out a couple percentage points right there. So I think it's more reasonable to expect like 65 to 7%. Looking at bonds, historical returns for long-term governments were like 5.6%. Right now, they're only yielding 2.3%. So you have to assume a lower return on your portfolio. For, Either, for how long? Like when people say, like if people the stock that, market tanks tomorrow, then are you going to be like, oh, well, actually, now things are looking up. But that's, that's a, because we've sunk so far. That's a, exactly right. Oh, so okay. <laughs> whenever, whenever like financial planners or anyone, Look at this. They're looking at a period of like seven to ten years, generally okay. speaking. Okay. So even valuation, when you stretch it out to like thirty years, it's not very useful. You're looking at the next decade, roughly speaking. Um, so that's so that's number one. Mm. Best returns are going to be lower. Uh, so manage your expectations there. Right, and then when you you it just basically you have to factor in. You're probably going to have to save more. The stock market and the bond market, they're not going to bail you out. Uh, number two, and this is something we all know, that we're going to have to expect less help from our boss and Uncle Sam. Um, Social Security, we know it has issues um, in terms of when the issues will likely hit people, at least according to the recent trustees report. Taxes cover most of the benefits. We have to tap these trust, the trust funds a little bit, but those are going to be out in 2029. At that point, people have to expect around 70% of what they're currently promised. I don't think it'll get to that point. They're going to make a change before then. But what you have to expect it is either A, if you're working, you're probably going to have to pay more taxes, and B, certain people will have reduced benefits, either because it's means-tested or you just have to wait longer to get them. When it comes from your boss, um, we all know that decades ago, people could generally expect some sort of help, whether it was that traditional defined benefit pension. Actually, even as far as like 1988, I found this amazing, two-thirds of big employers provided Healthcare for the retirees. Oh wow! Isn't that That's amazing? amazing. Yeah, and now it's you know about a quarter, and most of those folks are government folks. So compared to what our parents experience, and even what current retir- retirees have, you're just not going to get as much help from employers or Uncle Sam, which means the onus of it is really going to be on you to do your retirement planning. Mm, that was another bummer news. That is another bummer. All right, number three. Um, this one is just a trend in what we're comfortable with these days, and that is more debt. So more people are getting near retirement or are in retirement with more debt. So for example, if you look at the 65 to 74 age range, according to the Federal Reserve, back in 1989, only about 20% of those people had a mortgage. Today, it's about 40%. And not only is the percentage more, but the size of the loan is bigger, even adjusting for inflation. 
So we're just more comfortable going into our retirements with debt. Transamerica did a study about what are your number one priorities or your, almost even your greatest fears in terms of your expenses and your money in retirement. Number one was just getting by, but number two was paying off credit cards, and number three was paying the mortgage. So it's just become more a part of reality for people that they have this debt. Um, and I'll definitely say that for me personally, it is definitely my goal to have my mortgage paid off before I retire. I met with some people recently who have a good bit of student loans and they're paying about 7%. But they also had a lot of cash on the side, earning less than 1%. I think for a lot of people, for that safe part of your portfolio or just money you have on the side, not really earning anything, paying off debt beforehand is, makes a lot of sense. I should know the answer to this, but if, if I have a lot of debt and I die, it comes out of my estate? Or does anyone else have to pay my debt? It does. So when what's one of the jobs of your executor is to yeah. settle the the claims of the estate before money is distributed to your heirs. But what if I but what if there's not enough money in my estate to cover my debts? Then it's like sorry, she right. died on you. Yep. yep. So go out in a blaze of glory is that's, what you're telling <laughs> that's me, right? What I'm telling if you. If I don't want to leave anything to my daughter. Right, exactly. All right, let's get to some good news. All right. Number so, four. So here's here is some good news, and that is we're just living longer. That's good news. That is good news. Um, so when you look back at like 1940, which was the year the first Social Security check was sent out, it was sent out for like $23. Um, if you made it to 65, you could expect to live another 13 or 14 years. Now, if you make it to 65, you could expect to live to 20 or 21 years, and even longer if you're married, believe it or not. Aww. Yeah. So people who make it to like age 65, if they're a married couple, it's about a 50-50 chance that one of them is going to make it to age 90. So, that's great news. From a financial planning perspective, it means that that's a longer retirement. If you're going to try to retire at 62, but you're living longer and longer, that means you have to have saved a lot more while you're working. Generally speaking, people haven't done that, so they need to work longer. But that's not horrible, because you're going to live longer as well. Which leads us, really, to the fifth thing that we're going to see as a change. And it's something that just recently started to shift, and that is the average retirement age will go up. If you look at um, where it was like in the year 1900, for example, the average retirement age, it's almost laughable, almost laughable was 76. Wow. If you were born in that year, you, chances are you, or you weren't going to make it till 50. If you made it to 65, you might make it another decade. So basically, people really didn't, didn't retire. retire. But so over the course of the 20th century, we, we decided to live longer. Well, we decided. We were able to live. We <laughs> I'm making a conscious choice. Yes, a conscious choice to live longer. But we also retired sooner to where, by the year 2000, the average retirement age was 62 or 63. Um, and that's sort of a, an unsustainable formula, where you work less and want to retire more. Because it's asking more of your working years to save more and more. And we just haven't been able to do that. So. After the Great Recession, the retirement age, after declining for decades, finally ticked up. And that trend, I think, is going to continue to a point where, in the next 20, 30 years, you're going to look at people mostly waiting till the 70s. But again, you're living longer, and that's not a horrible thing. And a research out of the, uh, from the Center for Retirement Research found that if for most people, those about half would be retired at age 65 are going to have to cut back on their lifestyle. They don't have enough saved. However, if they just delay it to age 70, 
almost 90% of people will be fine. So a lot of this can be resolved by waiting until age 70. Also, a lot of people, perhaps, are working longer because they enjoy their work and they're physically able to keep working. So that's kind of that's kind of good news. So this could be good news or bad news. Well, that's what a lot of the research is indicating, is that people are working later, but money isn't necessarily the number one reason. And I think really the, one of the big changes we'll see over the coming decades is a whole different concept about what retirement is. This is actually just tomorrow is the 12-year anniversary of the very first issue of Really Retirement. Oh, congratulations! And in that issue, I interviewed a guy named Mitch Anthony, who wrote a book called The New Retirementality. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out that we are a binge society. We binge on education, on education in the beginning, then we binge on work for a few decades, and then we retire and binge on leisure. And what you're going to see over the coming decades is there being sort of more of a mix of that. So where people will go to college, they'll start the careers, but then maybe they'll go back to school and work part-time, might take a year or two off as a sabbatical, maybe once they get to their older years doing a phased retirement or seasonal work or something like that, especially when you consider where the life expectancies could be in the future. There was a, an issue of Time Magazine from, I think, a year ago. It was a picture of a baby. It said, this baby will live to 150 years old, I think it said. Mm. When you think of living that long, retiring at 62 just isn't sustainable. So I actually find that kind of inspiring. And one of the big messages from people like Mitch Anthony, um, a group called Age Wave that does a lot of great research about this, is that society is changing to a point where it is offering more opportunities for people who would be normally close to or in retirement to go back to school to do different kinds of work. But your bottom line about the new normal for retirement is, it's good, just plan for it. I don't know, what do you think? How do you want to put a bow on this? Put a bow on this. I, I really do think it's a, it's a matter of, rather than looking at work, 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 reach your early to mid 60s and then stop working, ask yourself, All right, what is it I want to do with the rest of my life? Especially once your kids are in college and out of the house, you have more freedom. You're at that point, for many people, they're at their peak earning years, yet they don't have a lot of those financial responsibilities. They might have saved up a lot of money, might even be in their 401k. You can still use that money for education or for doing something that's more rewarding for you rather than doing something that pays you the most money. So, bro, what do you want to do in your retirement for your new retirement? I, I certainly would imagine that I would, if I'm still doing in this sort of like financial planning thing, that I will be doing more financial planning for lower income folks, um, something along those lines. Uh, I was actually pre med in college. Hmm. And uh, I would not be surprised that once my kids are out of school, I go to med school and then do what my sister does in Orlando, and that is community health care. She works at a clinic for the working poor. I would imagine I would be doing something like that. So one of those two Good things. Good for you. Yeah. Actually, now, I bet, I bet any, any answer Rick and I give will be totally shallow and self-centered. That's why we're not going to give any. Yep. <laughs> You're going to go save the world. Rick and I are going to go sit on a beach. Leisure world, here we come. Leisure, here we go. Hello, villages. We're on our way. It's Euro Cup time, and I'm going to have Rick explain what that is. That is the world's most popular game, played in the most popular place for it to be played by 
all the most popular players. Really? Euro Cup is the most popular game and the most popular plays with the most popular player? Why isn't World Cup the most popular game and the most World popular? Cup it is, of course, but this is it's like the off year. You have the Summer and the Winter Olympics. It's kind of like that. Okay. The World Cup, and then there's the Euro Cup. And the Copa America, which is happening here. Yeah. yeah, I, this yeah is I, I knew so that. so exciting. Um, yeah, so Rick is, Rick's job is to bring it, bring the excitement when it comes to talking about soccer. So, yes, it is the Euro Cup. It's a thing. It's a big deal, apparently. <laughs> you may remember that back during the 2010 World Cup, Paul the Octopus correctly predicted the winner of eight matches, and ever since then, people have been looking for animal oracles for advice, even for the Euro Cup. We have Nelly the Elephant and a koala bear named Ubi Ubi making Ubi, predictions. Ubi. Isn't that a great name? So, uh, so far, Nelly's gotten one right, and Ubi Ubi has not, but... Whatever. So, how do animals fare when it comes to stock picking? Because, yes, people have made animals pick stocks. <laughs> Back in 2013, I believe it was the London Observer, decided to have a cat named Orlando pick stocks against a team of professionals, stock picking professionals and also some students. So each team invested a about 5000 pounds into five companies from the FTSE and everything every three months they could exchange the stocks, replace them with others uh, from the index. So while the professionals used decades of investing knowledge and traditional stock picking methods, the cat selected stocks by throwing his favorite toy mouse on a grid of numbers allocated to different companies. So when it was all said and done, the cat Orlando managed to have an average return of 4.2% to end the year with about 5,500 pounds. Nice. Compared to the professionals, about 5,200 pounds. So the cat out-invested them. But... Turns out it's not just cats that are good at investing. What other animals are good at investing, Allison? Monkeys. Monkeys. <laughs> but before we go into the monkeys, why, bro, why would someone have monkeys do investing? Uh, well, when you read about this, it usually harkens back to a book that came out in 1973 by Burton Malkiel called A Random Walk, Walk Down Wall Street. And one of his arguments, and he was actually one of the first people to be really making this argument back then, is that it's very hard to beat the market. The quote is, a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at a newspaper's financial pages could select a portfolio that would do just as well as one carefully selected by experts. Right. And the, the theory being that it's actually hard to beat the market, and the average quote-unquote expert actually doesn't do that well. And then ever since he wrote that book, Various people have tried to simulate his hypothesis one way or another. Yes, with monkeys! With monkeys and darts. So, in, in 1999, there's a chimpanzee, chimpanzee named Raven. You might remember her from Babe, Pig in the City. She threw 10 darts uh, at a dartboard of 133 internet-related companies. and So, she managed to outperform more than 6,000 internet and technology money managers and earnest an astonishing Astonishing 213% return. Remember, this was in January of 1999. Right. Uh, 
<laughs> so apparently uh, on Market Watch, there's a headline that said, Chimp, 99 Champ, makes monkey of Wall Street. Uh, and obviously, she did very well. However, then 2000 happened. And after the dot-com bust, uh, she did very poorly, leading a finance professional to say, any monkey with a dart can potentially make money in a rising market. Didn't they make an index off of her? I think they called it the Monkey Dex. Yes, the picks were so impressive that they created the Monkey Dex, an index based around her picks. Throw it by a dart. Throw it with a dart. We also have the circus chimpanzee Lucia, who did very well in Russia. Uh, her portfolio topped 94% of Russia's mutual funds. And then there was also a monkey named Adam Monk, which I would argue is the worst name for a monkey ever. Like, why would you name your monkey Adam Monk? That's, he was very contemplative. Yes, whatever. He worked for the Chicago Sun-Times. He's a Brazilian cinnamon-ringed Cebus monkey, and he picked stocks by circling them in the newspaper with a red pen. He performed the out, outperformed the indexes four years in a row, from 2003 to 2006, and he did it again in 2008 with a portfolio that only lost 14%, while most money managers were losing upwards of 35%. So, bottom line, monkeys! Monkeys, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> Not only are they fun, they're also really good at investing. So this would make uh, me feel like maybe Malkiel was right, and I shouldn't bother investing in individual stocks. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are other studies that show things like this. Like uh, um, research affiliates did a simulation of this, where they would pick random stocks, and that also would beat the market. And one of the conclusions they drew is actually similar to what I mentioned earlier with Answers Answers, and that. Part of the reason why um, some of these dart-throwing monkeys and other stock-picking animals do well, at least compared to the overall market, is that by chance they're randomly choosing smaller companies, um, which historically do beat larger companies. Um, But it does go to show that a lot of what happens in the market in terms of investing over the short term is luck. And I think that's, that's one lesson about this. I actually sent this article, the one about the stock-picking cat Orlando, to Tom Gardner, founder of The Motley Fool and CEO. Um, and I said, aha, isn't this pretty funny? And his response, and I dug it up today, was he said, I find these stories kind of funny, but mostly absurd. One year tells me nothing as an investor. And you put that cat up against Charlie Munger over 10 years, and it'll be begging for mercy. A lot of these things are very short-term. Mm-hmm. And I think any stock picker, any mutual fund manager, anyone who's managing any kind of money will tell you, I don't know what's going to happen over the next six months to a year. So, who knows? Measuring a cat or someone up over a longer period of time would be a little more interesting. Well, maybe not interesting, but more meaningful, maybe. And that's what we're really looking for here. We're looking for We're really meaning. looking to get to some meaning behind monkey stock pickers. Rick, if you had a pet monkey, what would you name it? In high school, we had a toy monkey that was passed around between people. It had like Alice Cooper makeup and a sword in its hands. It was really scary horror movie stuff. And it was named Zip the Monkey. And that is probably what I would name my monkey. Okay. Zip the Bro, Monkey. How about I would you? Give it Alice Cooper makeup, too. Yeah, absolutely. Bro? Michael Nesmith, my favorite monkey. Oh, that's cute. That's yeah. a cute idea. Yeah. Uh, my monkey would be named Lord Archibald Fuzzy Britches. <laughs> that by itself is the funniest name. Yeah. I think well, monkey or no? Yeah, it's just a good name. We would have named our daughter that if she'd been born a, a boy. <laughs> or a monkey. Lord Archibald <laughs> Fuzzy Bridges Southwick, the first, the <laughs> first of his name. I have no more than I did before, but now I've got all that I
right. That's it for today, dear listeners. You can drop us a line at answers at fool.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Answers Podcast or join our Facebook group. The show is edited monkily. Is that a word? Animalistically? By Rick Engdahl. <laughs> for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.